You are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at Iwu. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. When talking about their short-term mission activities, participants often describe their time, money, sacrifice, and service applied in the name of mission as a way to purchase an experience akin to personal growth commonly sought by pilgrims. That's a quote from Dr. Rob Haynes, who is our guest today. Dr. Haynes is the Director of Education and Leadership for World Methodist Evangelism. He's an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church, and he is the author of Consuming Mission Towards a Theology of Short-Term Mission and Pilgrimage, published by Pickwick Publications. Welcome, Dr. Haynes. Thank you, Aaron. Great to be with you today. Now, that insight caught me when I was reading through some material about your book, that people are seeing this experience of short-term mission activity in a way to pursue personal growth experience. And you link it up with pilgrimage. I thought that was such a keen insight. So let me kind of backtrack a little bit. And just as you are, uh, as a way to introduce you to our listeners, would you mind telling us just a little bit about why did you write this book and what does uh, what does it mean to be on pilgrimage? What is pilgrimage, and how did it lead you to writing this book? Yeah, thank you. Those are great questions, both. My background, I have 25 years or so experience as both a pastor and a teacher, and in serving in the local church, both as a youth pastor and as a, an associate pastor who's work area included short-term mission trip and as a lead pastor in different ways and people looking at even local service, um, there were these questions of how can we go and do something for those people over there was a lot of times some of the language that was used. It was an expectation, particularly as a youth pastor, that we would have these short-term mission trips just as we would expect to have Sunday school or a Wednesday night Bible study or a Sunday night uh, youth program. And I often heard people talking about uh, these mission opportunities as a way that uh, people could personally grow in their own faith, as a way that they could experience something different, as a way that they could go and see another part of the world, even what God was doing in somewhere and in another place. And along the way, the people that they went and served would be helped. And it seemed like a pretty good idea to, to, to try to go ahead and get these things started. And so as I were leading, as I was leading these trips and as I was involved in these, I found that oftentimes people were different while they were on the trip. But when we got back, things quickly kind of went back to the way that they had been before. And uh, I didn't see any really long term change in the people that I was serving. And I really began to ask just what's going on in this. At the same time, looking at ideas of mission and uh, where we send people on mission. So if we look globally at the church now, we see that the church is growing by leaps and bounds in the global south, yet in uh, North America and other parts of the West, the church is on the decline, many people would say. And so I was wondering, what is going on in the transactions? If you send some somebody from, say, North America into the global south, where the church is growing, what kind of theologies are they bringing back home? So I wanted to explore the theological transactions that were going on during these short-term mission trips. What was happening and, uh, and why? And along the way, I found that people were very interested in leaving some place that was usual to them uh, in, in 
uh, academic work of pilgrimage, you call that the mundane, so that they could go see something else, a place where they expected God to work in them because God was understood to have worked there before and would could very well work again. So they would go to some place that was sacred and then they would return home different than what they uh, had left as. And so when you look at that, that's a, an elliptical motion. You leave the mundane to go to the sacred, to return to the mundane again, different than what you left. Historically, that is pilgrimage. And when I started to interview people who had been on short-term mission trips, I was really trying to make sense of some of the language that they were using. And when I started to look at historical uh, works of, of research in pilgrimage and look at academically what people have done around pilgrimage, I think it provides a very helpful framework to describe how people are uh, engaging short-term mission activities. Really interesting was some of the facts and figures that you came up with um, on the impact of short-term missions, even economically. Uh, you have down, uh, part of your research found that people that were going on short-term mission had about $1,000 in expenses, excluding transportation. Uh, so uh, that this would include project costs, hotels, food, and the like that would be uh, invested. As well, you had about 30,000 uh, person years of service valued at over a billion dollars of time and contribution um, uh, through, th through short-term mission. Um, all of that was generated because somewhere between 1.8 and 2 million people from the, from the USA are participating in short-term missions uh, annually. Um, just looking at the financials of it, there's a lot at stake with short-term mission. Absolutely. And I think not only is there a great deal at stake financially, I think that there is an even broader footprint that trips like this have in terms of how we think about uh, mission activities. So when you have your average youth group say, they're usually, they uh, may write to family members or friends. Uh, a lot of times people will say, hey, write to your Christmas card list and see if they will donate to your mission trip. And then you think about how many more, if there are 2 million people going, then that's how many more people that we can't even count are impacted by that. And then you think about the people that the uh, short-term mission participants would impact on the ground in those other countries. What's interesting is we talk often about youth, and I've done that a great deal already, but it's usually not youth who are going. The average um, short-term mission participant is not a youth, but instead it's a, a, a male in his 40s or 50s college ed educated, usually white and married, lives in a relatively homogenous suburb uh, in the South of the Midwest. Religiously, he's gonna be affiliated with an evangelical church where he's been a member for at least say three years or so. Uh, he's gonna be somebody who's gonna be a Sunday school leader or serving in leadership in different committees. And uh, so in a lot of ways, it looks like your, your average, uh, very active churchgoer with the exception that most of churchgoers are women. Uh, so my study included not youth, but it uh, interviews people ranging from ages 18 to 81 to get a much broader uh, perspective. And uh, my um, my average age of the survey falls in that to 40 to 50 range instead. So we do see that it's something that is much beyond the typical youth group spring break summer trip or even college student uh, spring break or summer trip. And it's important to note too, Aaron, that when we talk about short-term mission to define just what that is, because historically we look at someone going overseas for a lifetime, 
Um, 83% of the trips last two weeks or less, and the average is eight days. So when I talk about short-term mission, I'm talking about something two weeks or less. I like that you brought up a question of defining short-term mission, and I even want to take a step further back, if I can. Uh, Of course, uh, through Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament and in the Ten Commandments, we are taught not to take the Lord's name in vain, not to use it to our own advantage and for our own purposes. And what I'm wondering is if we can actually take the name of mission in vain. Right? I, I hear some of, of what you're describing, that, that um, this connection of, of short-term mission and pilgrimage, this desire to purchase an experience and this, this search for meaning and for meaningful activity and running it under the name of mission. Now, I've, I've had people ask me for support for short-term mission, and, and I've I've happily obliged. I haven't been offended by that. But but part of our discussion here has me has me asking, are there ways that we've actually taken the name of mission in vain, using it to describe something that might be part mission, but might be part other things as well? How might you respond to that? Can we take the name of mission in vain? What an interesting idea to explore and go a little further. Um, I want to affirm that there are many good things happening on some of these trips. There are clinics that have been built. There have been lives that have been changed. Uh, there have been uh, ways that have been impacted, uh, both on the role of those who have gone, who maybe they've uh, dedicated their lives to longer-term service, or maybe there have been good things that have happened in the field. However, I do think you bring up some very good points. Just what is the example of mission in Scripture? And I deal with this uh, at length in in the book because I think it is important if we're going to start asking what is it uh, that motivates us to uh, to mission, and if we're going to do that in the name of Christian mission, it should be the example of Christ that provides our own motivations. And so when looking for people's motivations, I first asked my uh, field participants for uh, a scripture verse. I wanted to know what is it that uh, drives you to do this? And the way I would do that is I would ask them, if you're going to lead a Sunday school class about mission, they want to come know about your trip so they can support you, but they really like to read the scripture verse first, what would you say um, is a a verse that motivates you on your short-term mission trip? What, What passage would you give them? And I didn't really ask them just for the address, just more the story. And there were some, uh, you know, people who said go or the Great Commission or or things like that. Um, But I found that this was one of the most difficult questions for people to ask, uh, to excuse me, to answer. They had a really hard time answering this question uh, because they were not sure about the scriptures themselves. Or um, when they did give answers, it was oftentimes uh, a scripture verse that gave them personal comfort into the difficult things that they had to do. Maybe they had not traveled on a plane before. Maybe they were going someplace where they didn't speak the language. Maybe it was going to be strange uh, because they didn't uh, weren't used to the food or the altitude or, or whatever it may be. And so I would ask uh, team leaders the same question. And again, got various answers. And, and some team leaders even told me that uh, they didn't really prioritize the Bible in their own life, though they knew that they should more. And so I should go ask the VBS director instead, because I really couldn't answer questions about biblical motivations. And so when I started to think about what is it uh, that is motivating them, if there's such an absence of scripture in this, and um, what I found was that oftentimes, in their, even in their meeting times, 
teams as they were preparing and while they were on their trip, they would have personal reflection times around some scripture, maybe a short devotion, but most of their preparation meetings were around logistics. How do you get your visas? What shot should you get? What should you pack? What should you leave at home? And then each day they might discuss scriptures a little bit uh, at the end of the day, but frequently those were uh, more of a reflection of the day. What was different? What was uh, strange? Kind of a, of a personal reflection. And so if there's an absence of, of biblical uh, motivation for it, what is it that is driving them? And that word that kept driving them more than anything else was the idea of an experience. And I really had a hard time figuring out what experience was and exactly what that meant until I started uh, peeling off some layers in the data. Then I was actually at a fast food restaurant uh, that a friend of mine runs. Um, and he's, at a, uh, he's a, a proprietor of a, of a few franchise um, locations of a very successful uh, chicken restaurant chain. And uh, so he was talking about how uh, he has to craft an experience around his restaurant. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, what do I have that nobody else on the street has? We all have chicken and fries, but I have to be different. He said, that's why whenever you say thank you, I say my pleasure. That's why whenever uh, you come in, there are fresh cut flowers on the table. There has to be something different. And we're all driven by the economy of experience. And I said, what do you mean? And he points me and he pointed me to a book called The Economy, The Experience Economy. And uh, the writers talk about how we live in an age and where experience drives the value that we place upon things. So you think about going off to an amusement park. You can spend thousands and thousands of dollars in Orlando and come home with nothing tangible, only an experience. Uh, we pay higher prices for food because there's rock memorabilia or movie memorabilia hanging on the wall. And so there is a premium that people are willing to pay for an experience. And because there was a biblical absence of motivation uh, in, the, uh, in the narratives, I think experience is what drives it. And that experience that they're looking for is to purchase that experience that looks like a pilgrimage. And I say that that's problematic because there are not examples of such a thing in scripture, which goes back to your question. When we look at why Jesus said he came in the first place, we look at Luke chapter four, we he unrolls the scroll and he reads from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that to me is our picture of mission first. And he doesn't do that any way where he says, I'm going to go heal people in this village, or I'm going to go feed um, uh, 5,000 men plus the women and children because it makes me feel better. It's because there's a certain need that is to be met by the kingdom of God in each life uh, along the way. And he does that not as a way to help himself feel better, but as a, a cruciform example of service that we're to emulate. Because then after the resurrection in John chapter 20, Jesus appears in the upper room. He breathes on the disciples, the Holy Spirit. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Leslie Newbegin, a missiologist, says that those four letters, as and so, are the most powerful in all of the scriptures. Because if we look at as Jesus was sent by the Father and emulate all that he did, 
that so he now has sent us as well that's what we're supposed to do and so i think you're right that we need to re-examine just what we uh, think is a priority in mission and how we frame that is very important uh, and that therefore it will be borne out in what we do there's a lot of material out there on short-term mission that says hey make sure you do these five things but don't do these other five things or make sure that you do this and you'll be great and make sure you don't do that um, what i say is that in order to really change any sort of practice we have to change motivations and in order to change motivations you have to work on people's theologies Theology shape motivations and motivation shape practices. So if we're going to make any long-term impact on a, a mission practice, we have to really help people examine their theologies and therefore we can change motivations and actions. I'm reflecting on a cliche that I was told never to use by my grade 13 English professor. And she said, um, Never, never to use the phrase, they returned from this journey, whatever it was, they returned uh, sadder but wiser, sadder mm. but wiser. And I'm kind of mm. reflecting on the return of people from short-term mission, which is, uh, I'll say there's some wisdom, right? They, they've had an experience that's that's been formative in, in at least the short term. Um, and there might be some sadness as well, but really what I kind of get back is like there's this desire to share what they've learned, right? So I'm seeing, I see pictures go up on social media. Uh, mm. We have them come and speak to the classes that, that were instrumental in sending them or maybe share before a church, share some of this experience, do uh, an interview, maybe format or have a video recorded, right? They, they want to share some of the, the highlights of it. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm asking, would you speak to those who have returned from short-term mission and are right now kind of in a ripe spot to say, okay, I've, I've come back and, and maybe my motivations were more complex than I realized when I left. Um, they're, they're, they're more complex when I left than I, than I realized. I wasn't quite aware of that. Now I'm aware of it and I'm, I'm ready for some reflection. I'm ready, for, uh, I'm ready to reexamine my motivations. What would you say to the person who's returned, maybe sadder but wiser, or maybe, maybe not, maybe in a different way? What would you say to the person who's now returned from short-term mission and is, is open for this kind of conversation? Mm. What a great question. I think I would encourage people to continue the conversation with their, um, their mission host where they were. I think I'd also encourage them to continue the conversation with their leaders um, of their own particular trip. Because oftentimes when the, the first trip is done, or the 10th or the whatever, that when we finish a trip, it's always looking forward to the next. So, for example, in my field research, um, I asked all of my participants to uh, meet with me afterwards so that I could examine those theological changes that may have happened while they were on their trip. And uh, of the seven teams that I interviewed, uh, none of them had any sort of formal meeting. Only one of them had uh, kind of an informal get together and they didn't really talk about it. It was more of the sharing of the pictures. But I would encourage them to very carefully examine their uh, their own uh, processes that are going on, what are the changes going on, what are the discussions going on in that, and meet with their mission leaders. And if you can't meet with a, someone who is like-minded, a missions pastor, your own pastor, or something like that, to begin to work through these questions, examine the scriptures and, and uh, look at some of these that we've talked about 
And what is it uh, that you can do to move beyond just looking at the pictures and, and whimsically uh, putting on social media some of those uh, things that you did and really start to examine uh, what is it that, um, that is still going on there that, that maybe God has called us to be a part of? Very carefully listen to your mission hosts. Um, I would remind people that wherever they go, they are always in a power of uh, in a position of power, whether they realize it or not. Um, I remember a, a trip where we took a medical team at the invitation um, of our uh, host in South America, and uh, it was a physician who was our leader. And um, so I was a, a mission team leader for this. Brought some doctors with me. And uh, they were running a clinic. And one of the things I wanted to do was put a, a specialist together with the general practitioner who was uh, the national uh, leader there, the doctor. And we found that people were pouring in in all kinds of numbers into this clinic. And about the second or third day, I really was struck by the fact that so many people had just left a doctor from that country to see our doctor. And I asked uh, some folks why that was. And they said, well, because you're the white North Americans. And so you've come in already and they feel like you know more just by the fact of where you're from and that you don't look like uh, um, the, the doctors here. And I was grieved by that, that we had un unintentionally undercut the, the host that had brought us in. So that he needed more help to see all of those in this clinic. And he, I don't know that he realized just what was going on. So be aware of your own uh, impact that you have in a situation um, it, to a greater degree. Really listen to your mission host about the things that they want, about the things that they don't want, and be prepared to, to step away in, in ways when they say, you know what, we're now making up work for you to do because you quite, you quite like it here and we're not quite sure what to do. Um, I've challenged folks as well to think about maybe even um, doing a, a reverse trip where if you've been on a trip for, um, uh, for whether it be once or several times, invite the pastor from that community to, uh, to your church and find them a place to stay, find them uh, food that they're familiar with, find them translators. And your church, as, as the, the sending church from the original one, you pay for them to come up uh, to your country and show them around just like you would expect to be shown around and start to see how maybe, yes, God may be working uh, for you all on a long-term partnership, um, but realize it's much more difficult to build relationships than, than people um, will sometimes give um, that practice because it, because there are issues of language and culture and power and dynamics that just take a lot of work and a lot of time to address. What's coming to mind is the way that uh, our family is encouraged to write letters to uh, children we might support through a, re a relief agency that's based in a in another country uh, to develop that relationship, right? To to hear their story, to get a sense of of their interests and and their hobbies and the state of their family, and to share those with them as well. So it, it's not simply um, in the in the situation or the example I'm using, not simply you know, writing a check uh, every every month to support that, but it's more than that, right? There's a way that there's a reciprocal nature um, in it. And I'm hearing that uh, value for relationship get affirmed in what you're just talking about now is, okay, the short-term mission is really just the start. So a person who's come back, um, that could be a, a first step 
Uh, you started this out by talking about people who return from short-term mission. They may have had an experience. They may have had some transformation that happened during the trip and that, you know, there was different attitudes or whatever else during the trip. But once they came back, it was tough to sustain that. And yet these basic practices of relationship, maybe it's writing letters or exchanging correspondence uh, through email, or whatever else. Uh, these basic practices can be those things that have that facilitate longer term transformation as relationship grows and deepens and is facilitated. And really, I love that idea of having this reverse mission trip is is we've been hosted by somebody else. How can we be host to them so that they have a sense of of who we are? Um, a, a few weeks ago, we had a, a guest on the, the podcast and he said, uh, he was talking about local mission, and he said one of the things that we have to realize is that everybody has things in their life over which they are powerless to change, and they we all have different aspects of need, and and it can be it can be humbling to invite people in when you're the host because you can get all prepped up before they get there, but once they come into your house, right, metaphorically speaking, they're going to see things about about you that you have stopped seeing about yourself. Right? You're not going to be as aware of some of the lack that you have in your life. And so I think that the more that we can deepen those relationships, just simple exchange of, of, of correspondence, prayer, intentionally praying for the other, and, and maybe even growing up to this idea of a reverse mission trip is a way that we can have the sense of, oh, I need that other person in my life too. Right, I, I need them to, to help me see who I am. I need them to, for me to have some self-awareness. I need them to... Um, to pray for me, uh, that I've got a lack that they can be involved in my life in to minister to me as well. I think you bring up some excellent points. Um, there's some work around pilgrimage that says a pilgrim is half a tourist and a tourist is half a pilgrim. And when you start to think about uh, around tourism, and tourism is it can be a wonderful thing, there are some phenomena around that that really affect how we view other people that we encounter on a short-term mission trip. And one of which is the compression of time and space and the idealization that we make around um, those that we encounter while we're uh, away. So it's very easy for me to jump on a plane and be anywhere in the world tonight. Um, I had a, a friend say, you can be, you can travel anywhere in the world with a passport and a credit card. And there's some truth to that. And uh, I can go there for a couple of days or I can go there for a couple of weeks and I can be back home uh, and in my own bed within a matter of hours. But while we're there, there are certain idealizations that we make about those people that we encounter that uh, and oftentimes I heard this in terms of the interviews when people would say things like those people are so spiritually wealthy, but physically impoverished. And I am spiritually impoverished, but physically wealthy. And therefore I want to go and see what it's like to live in that place because they have so much more than I can never obtain because of their poverty. Well, okay, I, I see that on the surface, but when you start to peel those layers off, what happens when you go away and this host church has been gearing up for months for your arrival for the four or five days that you're there and uh, and actually doing some work in that area are things still that way when when they leave and, and i would venture to say and i think the research bears this that people are people and uh they have struggles and problems i don't think they like to be uh you know particularly hungry or uh, have a, a a shortage of medicines or whatever it may be that people project upon them 
And instead, it's helpful to start to examine what is right? What is God doing in you? And how can I come alongside that? Or what does God want to do in you next? And how can I come alongside that? What's interesting is many people did say that, you know, those people, quote unquote, that they encountered were so um, so spiritually uh, wealthy and, and physically impoverished, but nobody said that they came home and sold uh, you know, things to, to be more like those that they wanted to emulate. And so um, it was, there were very uh, complex answers that they really weren't ready to deal with on, on several levels. I think of one example where um, a group was going in to teach uh, marriage um, and, and family coaching using um, the fireproof uh, material. And it was in a context where uh, the fireproof material really didn't fit very well because, and at their own admission, the, those that were going to do this teaching had said that, uh, you know, they didn't have the same uh, issues of say rites of passage that we have in the United States where one gets a driver's license and then moves off to college that their students wouldn't have these sorts of issues. So they were going to talk about an hour or so and figure out how they could make that change. And then they were going to build in uh, these new things as they were going to teach marriage and family in a place where it was a very high divorce rate um, because of uh, the particular government was taking away any sort of leadership that, uh, th that the, the father should have in this family. Then at the same time, some of their teammates were recalling that they had a great deal of admiration for uh, their hosts because they were so poor they had better family relations in terms of the fact they don't have cars so they can walk everywhere they go so that means they chit chat while they're walking up and down the street or because they're not able to move out of the house and and buy another house they have to add on a room to their home and therefore they have these deeper family relationships and so uh, i think we need to be careful about the idealizations that we put on other places and other people and uh, really start to examine what it's like to live in a longer term scenario and a longer term uh, sort of relationship and realizing that just four or five days once a year or a couple of emails here and there isn't going to be uh, what it takes to really build in some very honest uh, and open uh, relationships that need to happen. What the passage of scripture that's coming to mind is um, if anyone would come after me to, to count the cost and in the sense of going on mission. And if we use Jesus as the example of the one who is on mission to us um, for us to go on mission with him is to count the cost, which, which includes not simply the, the startup costs, right? The initial costs and the, and the project costs of short-term mission, but the, the cost ongoing after it's over, that if we really want these relationships to flourish, and if we really want an experience that is truly transforming transforming and long-lasting, that there's a deep cost that goes with it long after the experience of short-term mission has ended. I would definitely agree with your assessment there, Aaron. It's so important to look at a, a lifestyle of mission. And you mentioned earlier uh, local missions, and I, I would ask folks oftentimes in these uh, interviews, uh, what sort of local mission things that they were involved in. And there were some who were, you know, involved in uh, tutoring programs or, or home repairs or that sort of thing. But frequently an answer was, well, some people are called to local mission and some people are called to international mission. And I'm called to be an international missioner and not do local things. And I'd really challenge that. I would challenge that to say that mission is, is a lifestyle that involves uh, a scriptural uh, motivation first and foremost. 
it's one that sees that uh, we have a role in the larger church to play. Um, and that is not just uh, in our local congregation. When I say larger church, I'm talking about globally uh, in terms of the church. So one way that we might serve the local church is, is yes, helping in our local context, but also recognizing that the church is moving around the world. Uh, mission affirms that evangelism is mission. Means that faith sharing is very much a part of life. We are ready to share our faith when somebody else is ready to hear it. Um, it, it. Mission insists that mission is not merely evangelism. It's not just saying something, but it's very much being involved uh, in the long-term um, uh, faith sharing way. And the last is that um, mission expects the ongoing discipleship in the lives of practitioners and recipients both. And if I'm going to be a disciple, that means I'm also going to be one who serves a mission and everywhere we Joining us today has been Dr. Rob Haynes. Rob is the Director of Education and Leadership for World Methodist Evangelism. He is the author of Consuming Mission, Towards a Theology of Short-Term Mission and Pilgrimage, published by Pickwick Publications. Uh, if this podcast has been of interest to you, I encourage you to check out uh, episodes of the Wesley Seminary podcast with Tanya Renee Nace. Executive Director of World Hope International Canada with extensive work on short-term mission. And I also encourage you to check out the episode with Reverend Andrew Sprock, who is the Director of Circles of Hope in Grant County here in Marion, Indiana, and some of his discussion of local mission. Both of those episodes would be great uh, to pair up with this episode as well. Thank you, Rob, so much for sharing your research with us today. Thank you, Aaron. It was my pleasure. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I hope this topic has been of interest to you. Uh, Beyond the two that I mentioned, check out some of the other podcast episodes from the Wesley Seminary podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.